It's December 23rd, 2021, and welcome to the Policy on the Frontier. My name is David Lease, and I'm your host today. The Frontier Centre for Public Policy is about better public policy for a better tomorrow, and it's about serving all Canadians. We are an independent and nonpartisan policy think tank. Our topic today is the climate change crisis. We know that climate change has always been and will continue to be with us, but is it a crisis? How can we better and objectively understand this issue that's almost forbidden to talk about now? Is it an existential threat? Is our civilization doomed? That is the question. Today we want to examine the top five so-called climate change myths. And here today to help us explore this fascinating topic is none other than award-winning columnist and our friend at Frontier, John Robson. John is an, also the executive director of a discussion group called Climate Nexus. He is a documentary filmmaker. Um, he is well-known as a columnist in many publications, including the National Post and the Epoch Times and the Looney Politics as well. He is an adjunct professor at Augustine College, and Dr. Robson holds a PhD in history from the University of Texas. He's worked in various academic and policy settings for some 30 years and lives on the other side of the country in Ottawa. And he possesses an extraordinary mind and witty sense of humor. So what better way on the eve of the eve of Christmas and to position for the year 2022? Welcome, John. Thanks very much. Good to be here. John, it's, uh, I'm delighted that you're joining us here today. We've got lots to talk about. And um, I'd like to set the stage a little bit for our far-reaching discussion today by reading none other than a very, I thought, a very animated uh, column or a commentary about none other than the Climate Change Summit number 26. The COP26 Climate Gab Fest in Chile, Glasgow is quite the spectacle. Its horde of private jets, um, ap uh, ap apocalyptic rhetoric, and detachment from reality reminds me irresistibly of Grand Moff Tarkin's, that's a Star Wars reference, Grand Moff Tarkin's evacuate in our moment of triumph. The great and good are gathered to end the debate for the 26th time and reverse the rising tide of endless hottest years ever, just as a long cold winter with skyrocketing fuel prices zooms past their radar. What's going on here, John? You don't seem to be such a fan of that climate change summit that was just held in Glasgow. I am a fan of it only in the sense that I think it put on display a number of the uh, problems and weaknesses with climate change alarmism. Beginning with the fact, and this is the first myth and the first thing you have to get past to have a discussion, the idea that there's nothing to talk about, the idea that the science is settled, uh, the particular claim that 97% of scientists agree that climate change is man-made, uh, urgent and dangerous. Because if that were really true, if 97% of scientists or the world scientists or climate scientists or whoever it is really did all think this, then it would certainly be a good idea to see what they thought we should do about it, even while we were prepared to listen to a voice in the back saying, hang on, folks, you've got this wrong. Because certainly there, there have been times when science was very much settled on something uh, and was wrong about it. As you may remember that the, the, the germ theory of disease and particularly the, the famous business about the Broad Street pump and the London cholera epidemic, where one doctor was saying, hey, it's this it's bugs in the water. And everybody else is like, oh, fooey, that's not what it is. Uh, but the, but the critical point on that one is simply there is no such scientific consensus. Nobody's ever polled the world's scientists. They don't even agree if it's climate scientists or, or who it is. I mean, if, if, if there were a consensus among microbiologists that climate change was real and man-made, it wouldn't be because it was their area of expertise, but there just isn't. The okay. surveys are based on very bad statistics. And so John, everybody you're, goes you're, to COP26. You're, you're speaking at, on a totally different planet here. You mean to say that there is not a consensus, and, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but what you're saying is so in contrast what we, with what we hear today in the media. So you, do you actually care about the environment? 
Oh, I care about the environment very much. I made a documentary in 2017 where I started by going back to the uh, cottage where I grew up, which is on Georgian Bay. And uh, when when I was a kid, we were we were nine miles from the nearest road. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have hot running water. Uh, we it, and all my life I have needed uh, open spaces in nature. I cannot flourish without them. And I think it's vitally important that we protect the environment. Uh, I mentioned in that documentary that to this day, I have this nightmare where I go back into the woods from the cottage and find a road uh, or condominiums or something. And I know that my my siblings have this similar uh, kind of experience. Um, so I think it's critically important that we protect the environment. And one of the problems, in fact, with climate change is that we're so obsessed with this supposed danger from CO2 that we're spending enormous amounts of time and resources and energy on this one thing instead of things like habitat protection that mm -hmm. are, I think, uh, critical and not being taken care of properly. And again, in the documentary, I, I used uh, the movie Soylent Green, which is um, perhaps now a dated reference and then some, but it, it's a kind of a murder mystery, but it's set in a world where we overpopulation and resource depletion have made the planet essentially on the verge of becoming uninhabitable. And it, it, it's just a horrifying vision. And at one point in it, it's Edward G. Robinson's last film, and he, he's playing this, this elderly kind of memory uh, repository for Charlton Heston, the main character, and he can't stand it anymore. He takes the government euthanasia, and he asks in his last minutes that he be shown films of nature as it once was. And Charlton Heston sees this stuff, and he's just stunned, and tears roll down his cheeks, and he says, how could I know? And so I, you know, all my life, I've been very, very afraid that we might do that to the planet. The point is we're not going to do it with trace amounts of CO2. We could do it by plastic in the oceans. Uh, we could do it just by crowding out all the, you know, the, the characteristic uh, charismatic megafauna, you know, the problem in Africa where there's, will there be room for the lions and the giraffes? Um, there are a lot of terrible things that we could do. And, and back in the day, I mean, remember the Cuyahoga River in, in uh, Cleveland caught fire in 1969. And the really appalling thing is it wasn't the first time it had happened. But this time people went, hang on a sec. We did what to the water? And the thing is, you can now fish in that river. They told me when I was there 15 years ago, I don't know that I eat the fish, but there are fish back in the river that we can save nature and we can save the planet. And in the process, I think Ella Whitaker Chambers save ourselves. But we need to do it by being rational about what's happening and what isn't. So if you had to describe John Robson and your mission then in this context, this important policy area, because we all care about the environment deeply, is to really be rational, you said, and dare I say, seeking the truth. And that is a debate. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, we, yeah, we, we need to be uh, have hearts and heads. And the, the problem is that a lot of people in the debate actually seem to have neither. In the first place, they're not thinking. They're, they're hostile to thought. And in the second place, they're exceptionally mean-spirited about it. Uh, and I know that's not unique to the environmental debate. There's a, a very serious breakdown of civility in all kinds of areas today. But it, it's certainly here. I mean, some of the, the messages that we get, and I'll be blunt with you, some of our supporters fail to exercise restraint or generosity of spirit either, and we take their comments down. But yeah, we, we, we just, we have to make our compassion effective, including our compassion for e ecology as well as one another. We need to make sure that we don't get ahead of ourselves and rush off and do something, or even worse, rush off and denounce somebody before we've actually thought through what's going on. And, and again, this whole question of climate change, we'll talk about the myths. There are a number of assumptions that people make about what we know is happening that just are not supported by the evidence. And even to come back to the consensus, the IPCC in its reports does what not the say- IPCC uh, the, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change does not say in its technical reports what the activists and sometimes the summary for policymakers, but mostly the journalists and the politicians claim that it says about things like extreme weather. It does not say extreme weather is getting worse. It does not say it. And to go around saying they say it and anyone who doesn't think so is an evil servant of wicked oil companies. That is a poisonous thing to say, and it doesn't just poison the debate, it poisons your own mind, because it's as false as it is vicious. Okay, so John, you're a historian, and I remember as a kid, growing up and reading lots of stuff, and I was a big fan, I suspect like you, of Star Trek, and particularly the character named Spock, 
And I remember Leonard Nimoy, of all, all people, hosting incredible documentaries on climate change. And then in the, um, what did I say, the, the late 70s, early 80s, there was all kinds of stuff about climate change, but it was all about the upcoming ice age. And I remember reading these books. Um, I remember them well, and, and it was kind of fearful. And it reminds me of today when the narrative has flipped instead of ice, ice, it's about warming. So have we learned from that kind of episode in history? We have failed spectacularly to do so. In fact, our latest video just released is on the 70s cooling scare. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, because a lot of alarmists are saying, oh, that never happened, right? We all knew it was warming anyway. And in fact, if you look into the 70s cooling scare, there are two things. One is this natural uh, cyclical cooling that they were afraid might be happening. And the other one is that burning fossil fuels might be cooling the planet. So it's, we've even got the same culprit here. But the one of the, and I actually made a video at one point, a historian looks at climate change because some people said, hey, well, you're not a climate scientist, uh, a term which is used very selectively since neither is Al Gore or Greta Thunberg. But my answer was, look, I am trained to try to understand the present by looking at the past. So when you tell me things are happening on the planet that we are definitely causing and they are unprecedented, my first question is, are they unprecedented? Mm. If we look back into the historical record, do we find that there has never been rapid temperature change before? Do we find that temperatures have never been as high as they are today? Do we find that rising temperature correlates with rising atmospheric CO2 and vice versa? Because if we don't, there's something wrong with this theory, even if you have a very clever internal to your computer explanation of why, if it were happening, it might be happening. But the thing is, I mean, Ian Plymer, who's a geologist, and he started a presentation to the British Parliament, I think, we said, I'm a geologist. And the one thing we always miss out in discussions of climate change is the past. And to a historian, if you don't look at the past, I mean, Herodotus, the father of history, wanted to know why wars happened. And he said, if you want to know why the next war might happen, the thing to do is see why previous wars happened. So again, if you say, why is this planet warming? Uh, well, why did it warm before? And if it never did warm before? And people like Al Gore have kind of claimed, oh no, temperature was stable for 12,000 years. But we know that's not true from all kinds of records, from um, geological records, also from written records for the last um, you know, 3,000 years or so. Uh, so, so they are attempting to explain a thing which did not happen at all. And that's a very bad habit. And one thing I will mention that is astonishing, if you go back, you know, a few hundred years or thousands of years or tens or even hundreds of millions of years, you don't find CO2 and temperature correlating. Right. So the theory that they suddenly started to around the time that you know, Trudeau Sr. became prime minister, there's a heavy burden of proof on that theory, uh, but it never tries to meet it. it. It tries to do by assertion and insult what it cannot do by demonstration. And that's not how you do science. It's not how you do history. And it's not how you make public policy. You ask people to show you the evidence and explain the logic. And when they oh, refuse wow. to do so and get angry, you know something fishy is going on. All right. So on that note, John, let's dive into these five climate myths. And number one, we almost need a drum roll, John. Um, the settled scientific consensus is that we are all doomed. This is a crisis. Is that correct? That is correct. It's correct that that's what they say, but it's certainly not true. Uh, in the first place, again, and we did a video on the 97% consensus myth, which looked at the surveys that attempted to demonstrate that there was this very widespread agreement. And the, the kind of sampling they do would get you a failing grade in first year university and probably in grade 10 math as well. It's amazing how shoddy it is. Um, but when you look at Beyond that, for instance, the, the, when they get the people in the room who are worried, like the IPCC tends to do that, it tends to gather scientists who think there's a problem and say, gentlemen, ladies, is there a problem? And they go, yeah, there's a problem. But when they say, how bad is it? Again, the IPCC says, well, we have pretty low confidence this is happening. We don't think that's happening. Um, we think this might be, but it's very nuanced. 
And one of the reasons why, and there are scientists as well as you know historians and just informed lay people. Uh, and let me make the point, I insist, by the way, intelligent lay people have a, the right to an opinion. This is not a closed subject, like all public policy. We don't say only accountants can talk about budgets. Uh, but when you look at the, the medieval warm period, which some people have tried to get rid of, it's pretty clear that the temperatures then were at least as high as they are today. And there was no catastrophe. But one book I keep citing, and it's by a guy who actually is worried about man-made global warming, but it's about the Little Ice Age. And he says, when temperatures cooled after 1300, the weather got horribly worse. And when you look back at the Roman warm period and the Minoan warm period, the Holocene climatic optimum, and, and there's not really much debate that these things happened. There's fussing about exactly how warm it was. So this is when the Thames River in London uh, froze over? That's in the Little Ice Age, yeah, and they had the ice fairs and so on. Uh, yeah. The Thames was not freezing when the Romans were there in their socks and sandals. But most scientists do not think that the weather in the Hol Holocene climatic optimum, and this is from you know eight, around 8,000 years ago and quite a long period, they don't think the weather was terrible. And, and another funny thing, because it was, it was definitely warmer back then, but North Africa was not a howling wasteland of deserts and, and life being eradicated. It was lush. It was wet. There were hippos there and giraffes and so on. So the science is not settled that warm weather is bad for life by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, there are hypotheses that it could trigger tipping points. But again, you know, the settled science, such as it is of paleogeology, we know that it was warmer until about two and a half million years ago. We're in an, a prolonged ice age. We're just in a warm part of it, an interglacial. And, and the time when the major uh, groups of mammals evolved at the time of the dinosaurs, much warmer than today. Okay. It was not a bad place for life to be. So the, the punchline then is that it's absurd to say that there's a consensus in science, because that's not how science works, does it? Yeah, there are, I mean, there are fields of science where a lot of people will think one thing for a long time, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. But the, but the idea, I mean, the famous tweet by Barack Obama that 97% of scientists say that climate change is real, man-made, and dangerous. Well, no, they do not agree that, for instance, the, the warming we've probably seen in the last 170 years, man-made. No, most scientists think it's partly natural. I think probably a majority think there's some human influence. But how much? is under debate and dangerous. There is not by any stretch of the imagination a scientific consensus that if the temperature goes up another 0.3 degrees or 0.7 or whatever it is, that terrible consequences will ensue. The, this is, the, and again, the historian speaks up here where they say, oh, the polar bears are gonna go extinct. Well, the polar bears didn't go extinct in the last interglacial, the Ebians, 130,000 years ago it started, and it was warmer than the Holocene again. And the scientists, if they know that the Eemian was warmer than the Holocene, they certainly don't blame, you know, Fred Flintstone's car. Uh, so they don't think that current temperatures are unprecedented or proof that humans are doing something horrifying to the planet of a sort that's never happened before. All right. That so stuff's just made up. Let's wrap up that first one. So there is not a consensus on this issue. It's an ongoing debate. And part of the debate is whether or not, in fact, it's a crisis. There is always climate change. That's a given. But it's not necessarily a, quote, crisis. Is that yeah, it? On the whole, cooling seems to cause a crisis. The cooling after the Roman warm period coincides with the Dark Ages. The cooling after the medieval warm period coincides with crop failures, you know, the Thirty Years' War. All kinds of uh, really nasty things happen in cooling periods. On right. the whole, we seem better off in the warming periods. And again, would you rather have the glaciers come back as a classic kind of, is it better to live in the Holocene or in the, the what was called, it's a great name. Like, I don't know where they think of names like the last glacial maximum. I mean, somebody got an award for that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but conditions were very, very unfavorable then. And we were down to 180 parts per million of atmospheric CO2. At 150, the 3C photosynthesis plants die. You know that like uh, there's there's a climate catastrophe okay. on a planetary scale. That's oh. the last thing we want to have happen. Okay, so onward to number two myth, and that would be there's an unprecedented rise in temperature, John. What do you say? Once again, th this just flies in the face of the facts. Um, you know, again, th there's some argument: was the medieval warm period warmer than today, or just as warm? Uh, and there's there's significant evidence, both you know, things like where were the tree lines back then, that tithing records, where were the crops growing and in what quantities? Um, 
that suggests the medieval warm period was warmer than today. And then people will say, yeah, but it was just in Europe. And then we're starting to see evidence from um, Asia and from even from Antarctica that says, no, that's not right. Uh, this was a significant global period. Uh, but again, there's then if you go back to the Roman warm period, there's even less dispute, really, that it was warmer than today. And the Minoan warm period, and then that was into the Holocene climatic optimum. So even in the last 12,000 years, we know it's been warmer than today on a number of occasions. Uh, and, and what happened is we invented agriculture, things like that. We didn't have catastrophes that wi almost wiped us out. And again, if you if you look further back, right, for the last two and a half million years, we have been in an ice age defined as significant polar ice. And mostly there are these long stretches where it's cold and barren in much of the planet. And then you get these merciful but brief, you know, 15,000 year interglacials where things warm up and it's better for life. But before that, when the Pliocene, before you get the Pleistocene, it's definitely warmer. It's three, four degrees warmer. And you know what? It's not a bad place to live um and species corals don't go extinct all these kinds of things people are telling us but and beyond that we know at the end of the last glaciation which we think we know i mean you're working with proxy records and doing the best you can that the temperature rises rapidly very rapidly and then it suddenly drops this so younger driest episode which no one's quite sure why it happened though there's some interesting theories but temperature drops in the course of a century by maybe six degrees oh again these are reconstructions and i wouldn't mm -hmm. bet on the precision and then it comes up again very rapidly faster than today and so the idea that sudden temperature changes are unknown is absurd um Probably the, the, the temperature increase from the, the Dark Ages cooling to the medieval warm period is probably as rapid as today. Wow. I mean, remember this thing they're trying to scare us silly with from the mid 19th century to now, they think it's gone up maybe 1.1 degrees centigrade. You know what? If you didn't have a thermometer, you wouldn't notice. That's not that much. So go to your house, right? Turn the, turn the thermostat up or down by one degree centigrade and see how long it takes anybody to notice unless they go and look at it. Um, so this is not a major change. This is not significant. This is not faster or steeper than the weather cooling that ends with the Roman warm period. Okay. Um, and also, we don't we don't have very precise measures because the ice cores do not capture year by year. Those bubbles take decades to seal. So uh, there are can, have been many temperature fluctuations possibly that we just don't know about because none of the kind of indicators that we have are are subtle enough to catch them. But even so, the idea that the, the, this one degree over a century and a half is something that's never been seen before so, is so just to clarify. So is that what we're debating about now? Like when we went to Glasgow with those 400 jets flying in there, spewing off their carbon dioxide. This is what it's all about is one and a half degrees over, did you say 80 years? It's not even that. They say they say since pre-industrial times, which again is a bit of an elastic term, but it normally seems to mean uh, 19th century. They think it's gone up about 1.1 or 1.2. And now they're telling us if the total gets to 1.5, we're mm -hmm. going to be in trouble. And if it gets to two, we're going to be doomed. So wow. you're talking about the temperature going up another 0.3 of a degree to 1.5, or maybe 0.8 of a degree to two over what it was like in the mid-Victorian period. And we're going to be in a heap of trouble. But they never explain how they know that that was a really good temperature. And this is one of these weird questions. They say, you know, we, we know what the right temperature is, but you, how? What what was the is eight, 1750 got some special status or 49 BC? You know, they why? How do they know what the temperature of the Earth should be? Right. If indeed it makes sense to say that it should be any one thing, but yeah, the okay. total increase. So, is John, I take it that, that it's absurd to say that these are unprecedented temperatures. I get that. But let's turn to the next myth, which is all about um, extreme weather events. Now, surely you can't deny that, John. We've got floods and fires. We've got all kinds of hurricanes that are going on. Look at Kentucky. This is crazy, John. You've, surely you can't deny the science there. Well, the, the only real way to deny that would be to look at the evidence. Uh, for instance, I mean, we have pretty detailed records of, of tornadoes and things, especially in the United States. And it's important because there's a bit of jiggery pokery going on now, because if you look, more recent records do seem to show more. But that's because we now have Doppler radar that picks up minor ones. 
But again, if you go and look at those records, the U.S. government records, and it's not like, you know, the Heartland Institute conjured this stuff up. No, if anything, the, the tornadoes are decreasing. And again, the people like the IPCC don't say they're increasing. What's this nonsense? They are afraid maybe they would increase if it got warmer, but they don't say they are increasing. Okay, so John, you got to repeat this because this is just, this is just so, and you know this, in the mainstream media, it is just totally the opposite message. And I would say, let's look to the math here. What's really going on? And you're saying it, that's not the case. We aren't having more extreme weather events. Is that right? That is correct. I mean, in some places are having more and some are having less because weather's variable. And okay. again, you know, the records, if you would, would ask me, well, what kind of tornadoes hit North America in 1300, I would say we don't know about that. But we do know, for instance, remember those floods in Germany? And of course, in Europe, we have pretty good flood records going back, you know, uh, 2000 years. And it's not like floods aren't a new thing. Uh, or, or the terrible storm, the Grota Mandrank, which happened um, in the 13th century, again, is the cooling is coming. Um, and, and, and entire towns are swept away. And partly this is not like, like rain flooding. This is uh, Atlantic storm flooding. But again, in that book I was talking about, The Little Ice Age by Brian Fagan, he talks about the fact that the medieval warm period had pretty stable, pleasant weather. And then as it cooled, the storms got worse. And we have records about this. We, we actually do have some idea, particularly in Europe. Um, or wildfires, the idea that there didn't used to be wildfires or that more acres are being burned. Again, in, in some places like the United States and Australia, we do have records. We have records okay. going back a century. But John, and I live in the grand city of Abbotsford, BC, where we had a major flood. Um, we've also had other challenges in, in BC during this rainy period. And it's very interesting. I was just talking to a friend yesterday. He called me and he said, look, uh, isn't this a, an example of extreme weather? And I said, well, it's a one in 50 year storm, which is certainly not unusual per se, but you know, I, I look to you to do the statistical analysis. But what I do know is this, is that in almost every case, there was major infrastructure failure, which was a public discussion where these dikes and other infrastructure all failed their engineering tests. That's something you don't hear about. Yeah, because, because partly, um, you know, the, the whole idea that we could build infrastructure to withstand bad weather casts doubt on the, on the doom and gloom narrative. But it's interesting you mentioned 50 years because, in fact, there was terrible flooding there in 1948. That's right. And before that, in 1894. Oh, my gosh. This is history again, John. History. Looking into this, well, if you don't like history, how about the wisdom of the ancestors? Because there were these Aboriginal stories about a really horrifying flood um, that, that was 90 meters, which maybe, you know, the tale may grow in the telling, but it could even harken back to the kind of things happening at the end of the last glaciation when there was a lot of melting. But part of the thing that I thought was interesting about this legend was that a shaman had a vision. He tried to warn the people there's flooding coming. And their response was, man, it floods here all the time. You're not going to get us scared with that story. And he was like, oh, no, you don't understand. This one's going to be worse. But the idea that the Aboriginal tradition would say there's always flooding here. And then there'd be a flood and people would go, oh, it's the worst. We're all going to die. And also one of the things you notice, like when they have the fires in Fort McMurray, and people said, oh, well, it's climate change, right? That's why Fort McMurray is burning in 2016. But when Fort McMurray doesn't burn in 2019, they don't go, oh, I guess it wasn't. You know, or the Amazon, it was 2019, everybody was having a fit. Although, in fact, there was nothing that unusual about that fire season. And there were a lot of fires in Africa. For some reason, nobody cared about that because there are always a lot of wildfires. There are, there are you know, tens of thousands of wildfires are burning all the time in the world. Uh, but if there's an isolated incident, it's not a trend. And so what you have to do is look at the trends, look at the data, and also look at things like forest management. Are we seeing more fires because the government is failing to clear away uh, the fuel and, in fact, suppressing small fires so that it builds up? Because if that happens, you'll get a pattern that is unrelated to climate. Or even, you know, the heat dome, another very famous thing that happened. But it didn't happen at the hottest time of the year. It happened in June. Um, and so the question is, OK, are June's getting hotter? Are there more heat waves? And if you look at the statistics again, you find that there aren't. So every time something drastic happens, a bunch of journalists with no training in history or science run in and say, oh, oh, isn't it awful? But wow. they don't do this kind of background research and say, hey, you know what? This uh, this has happened before, like even this, this temp temperature record in Siberia. Um, well, there was a t it was nearly that hot in 1988. 
Oh, I get these these tweets about Ottawa and saying, oh, well, you know, this is the seventh hottest year in the last 140 because we have records. But then you look, well, what are the others? You notice it's like, oh, it was 1953. Well, that's not a trend. That's just the fact that some years are hotter than others. Okay. So you're saying statistically, there's it's a myth to say that there are more extreme weather events going on. So where is where are you getting your data, John? Come on, like let's come clean here. Where are you getting your data? Where is it biased? Well, I'm getting my data primarily from government agencies, which is interesting because governments are pretty much all in on the climate uh, panic, right? The politicians are all saying, oh, this is happening. And in fact, the American authorities have a nasty habit of adjusting the temperature records. Uh, Tony Heller is all over them about this because you look and they have these uh, unadjusted records in the 30s are the hottest decade ever. And then they say, oh, well, you know, we have this theory that thermometers in the 30s uh, were recording temperatures higher than they really were and so on. And suddenly they tilt the graph. But this stuff is coming from, you know, the national um, and the NOAA and, and um, NASA and so on. And NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, again, is, you know, the home of the, uh, the, the passionate alarmists. But the actual data they have and, and the temperature records, you know, in some parts of the world, mostly, frankly, the English speaking countries uh, in England, they go back into the 18th century. Though, again, you, you know, the thermometers were, you know, sort of suspicious uh, objects containing alcohol solutions and they've gotten better since. Um, but there's also, I mean, people look at things like where are the wet, where are the temperature stations, and are we are we seeing an urban heat island effect? And and again, the Americans have set up and uh, or tried to isolate a network of of weather stations that are largely exempt from the problem of urban buildup, and they're finding little or no temperature trend in the 20th century. And it surely stands to reason that if the temperature's not rising, the rising temperature can't be causing an increase in extreme weather. But again, you just look at the official American government records on tornadoes and things like that, and, and you discover that they're not getting worse. Or you look at what the IPCC has to say. And, and again, I think they have their own slant on things. But even so, in their technical reports, they do not say there's an obvious increase in extreme weather and mankind is causing it. They, okay, they wow. do not make that claim. That's amazing. Okay, so let's talk about alternatives to fossil fuels. Why don't we just slap up more wind, windmills and uh, solar panels and let's just get rid of those fossil fuels. It'll just be okay. Yeah, and, and we do get a number of comments from people saying, look, even if, you know, even if you have a point that perhaps it's uh, the consensus isn't as solid as people say, why take that chance? Why burn fossil fuels? Yeah. You know, if there's even a 30% chance it'll trigger a catastrophe when we have these other alternatives. John, the are you against is, is quote, only, green energy? Are you against it? Well, I know not if there's actual energy, but and if it's green. But the, the funny thing is the only energy source that I think is really reliable that we're not using properly. I mean, hydro is good where you can uh, where you've got the right sort of rivers, but it's nuclear. And for some reason, they hate nuclear power for the most part. You'll find some climate alarmists who are saying, oh, my goodness, build more reactors. And I praise these people for the logical way in which they think. But the problem with wind and solar is twofold and electric vehicles and a number of others, but primarily those two. One is they don't actually deliver the energy. I mean, they're having this, this problem in Britain now and in Germany. You know, they shut down the nuclear reactors and now they're burning coal to keep warm in a, in a severe winter that wasn't meant to be happening. But the other one is they're not green. That when you look at the total resource input and some of it, I mean, there are these stories about where the, the rare earth minerals and so on come from, slave labor in China, child labor in Africa, disgraceful practices that obviously any sane person opposes. But even if you could fix that, if you got better labor standards, these things are very resource intensive. They don't generate a lot of power. They require vast amounts of transmission capacity. And then you have to get rid of the used solar panels and wind turbines. And where do you put them? Wait you a sec, John. This is unconscionable. You're saying that things like solar and wind are not the answer to affordable energy? What are you talking about? Not remotely. There are places where they provide useful help, right? I mean, and if you put on my historian hat, you know, in the Middle Ages, the development of water mills and then windmills helped relieve humanity of backbreaking labor. And these were good things, but they, they had to build windmills in some places because they didn't have the right kind of water. But when the wind doesn't blow, you don't get the energy. And there are limits to how much they can provide and they can't be turned up and down at need, right? When, when energy demand peaks, you can fire up the gas boilers. 
Um, you know, you can you can crank up the nuclear factory, you can add more coal, uh, but you can't tell the wind to blow harder. Um, and so, and you know, there are places where a solar panel will keep something running where it's hard to get a wire to it. They're not useless by any means, but they will not and cannot power a modern economy. So we but is, either is alternative need... energy cheaper than oil and gas? No, uh, people keep saying it is, and then saying we need to give it more subsidies so it can finally compete. I remember years ago being shown, you know, hydrogen energy, and this was like the fuel of the future and had been since 1836. Well, if it hasn't been made to work by entrepreneurs in almost two centuries, chances are there are real physics laws of physics uh, limitations on it. The, 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 with hydrogen, it, the problem is you got to you know electrocute water to get lots of hydrogen. The one way you probably could do that is by building nuclear plants, zapping the water, and then shipping the hydrogen around. So again, nukes are the answer. But then okay. why not just use the nuclear generated electricity? Nuclear plants have a very small greenhouse gas footprint. Cement is actually surprisingly carbon intensive, but once you built the thing, and then they get these scare stories about nuclear waste that again are not. Uh, not sound or about safety. I mean, yeah, don't let wow. the Soviets build. Okay, reactor. so so this is interesting. So the the whole notion of um, how readily available alternative energy is to fossil fuels is is a huge myth. It's it's just nonsense. Well, it is, I mean, it and, means... and again, the theory is quite clear. But also, if you look at the experience of European countries, including Britain, they gambled on this, and their grid is in danger of collapsing. They are looking at a very hard winter. They're begging Vladimir Putin for natural gas, which is both unsafe and undignified. They have been trying for decades to make it work. Germany, with its um, energy vendor, right? Or that's not quite how you say it. Uh, but but this, they, they, they were all in on on the alternatives, and it just hasn't paid it's off working? It's enormous it's subsidies. In energy prices right? are extremely high and the grid is is wobbly or worse uh, and i mean germany yeah they're, they're frantically reactivating coal plants that's the end um the the end game of of wind and solar is a, is a coal plant okay so the punchline is it's not affordable it's not efficient it's intermittent so it's not reliable on every count alternative energy really doesn't work. And not only that, it takes an awful lot of energy to produce all this material. Like yeah, and, and solar pollutes, panels, right? It, it's not even green with the it's one not even green. striking exception of nuclear. And yes, we should be building more modern nuclear plants for all kinds of reasons. And yes, we'd use less fossil fuels if we did. And that's too bad for the oil companies. But the other stuff, no, this is, uh, this is not a basket which you want to put your eggs. It doesn't have a wow. bottom. Okay, so... Just to just to polish off that myth, then. So why the heck don't we hear about this very often? I've certainly seen lots of incisive analysis about this, um, but you don't hear about it in the media. What what the heck's going on? There is a certain tendency among the kind of people who are attracted to journalism to want to be crusading to save uh, humanity and. You know, Friedrich Hayek wrote an essay years ago about the uh, the intellectuals and socialism, where he said that uh, people of a conservative bent can find lots of satisfying ways to spend their lives, uh, whereas people who are dissatisfied with society tend to be drawn into things like academia and journalism. And so, you know, there's there's a greater amount of intellectual firepower on the malcontent side. Um, but... Uh, there's also, I would suggest one of the things that happened, you know, in the 1960s, in the very early 60s, uh, the media got very much behind civil rights and they went from reporting to advocating. And it was a, a great and worthy cause. And it was a tremendous time to be young. But it gave this cast to the press ever since that we should be crusading against established evils on behalf of a better world. So you don't tend to report and you don't tend to attract the kind of people who want to report that the utopians are talking nonsense. Um, and, and again, because of this thing about not a climate scientist, we've developed the habit at the climate discussion nexus of uh, when some story is written by somebody saying, oh, the science is this or that, we go and we look up their education. And, you know, they're like a major in Latin American studies, and which is fair enough, provided you aren't going around saying, oh, well, you can't talk, you're not a scientist. Uh, but there's clearly an unexamined set of assumptions. And, and, you know, imagine going to journalism school and saying, well, I don't believe in man-made climate change. You'd be ostracized. You'd be made wow. so uncomfortable, you'd leave. Uh, people are even driven out of academia, like Judith Curry, uh, by, by the social hostility 
that they encounter. So by now it's a very closed mindset. All kinds of media outlets will not have me on because they have a blanket policy, no climate deniers. So they have an actual professional uh, commitment to present only one side of the story. Now, and of what course, do you mean once by you start that? doing like there's that, a, that's... There's an agreement among media outlets and the Weather Channel not to talk about things? No, not among them, within them. You know, within the them. radio stations in Ottawa that used to have me on regularly will never have me on now, and I believe this is why. Uh, but, you know, and it doesn't strike them as, well, we're being narrow-minded. It's like, well, we're keeping the dangerous idiots out. But wow. it's happening in more and more subjects, right, where, where you can't get, if, if you're skeptical of orthodoxy in any number of fields, um, they, they feel that it's their moral duty to exclude you. So they're not doing it out of conscious malevolence, but the result is they are deliberately limiting the debate, depriving their audiences of alternative points of view and going home at the end of the day thinking they're the good guys. Wow. So let's, for the sake of the planet or our cause, let's give up free thinking. Yeah, as you know, if in 1965, if you'd said, well, would you like to have someone on who'd like to preach white supremacy, they'd have said, good heavens, no, we will not let that person into the studio. And, wow. and they wouldn't have been, you know, obviously bad people for that, although I'm a great believer in the Dracula effect that sunlight destroys evil. If you want to get rid of bigotry, give a bigot a microphone. Um, but, uh, but on this issue, I think that there's a, a number of factors have uh, combined, including the impulse to save the world from something. Uh, to, to create a, a media mindset where people who have no idea what the evidence is uh, are convinced that the evidence is entirely in their favor. And then they, you know, the phrase virtue signaling, right? They're, they're, they're the beautiful people. They're the right kind of people. They get invited to the right kind of cocktail parties Wow! Um, because they're going to save the world from CO2 and the evil oil companies. Well, speaking of which, should we be shutting everything down in Canada, not just the oil and gas industry, which has obviously been a strategic asset for our country and affordable energy, but why don't we just shut down everything? Because obviously we're headed for apocalypse, John. That's the final number five myth. Are we headed for apocalypse? Well, if we do that, we are, but uh, not for the reasons they think. And this one is very important, too, because a lot of people who are, including a lot of people in the energy industry in Canada, actually, say, you know what, if we try and fight on the science, we'll look like thugs and know-nothings. Let's concede on the science and fight on the policy. I call this rallying around the white flag, a phrase I got from Spike Milligan. And it cannot work because if... It doesn't matter how disastrous it would be to get rid of fossil fuels. If the alternative is to destroy the planet, then you have to do it and try and find a way to cope. The thing is, we're not. Even if human greenhouse gases are raising the temperature of the planet significantly, and I do not concede this point, you need to prove that raising the temperature of the planet by another degree would destroy civilization before you're justified in taking steps that would themselves destroy civilization in order to prevent it. And if you got rid of affordable energy, you would destroy our societies. People would starve in large numbers. It's even possible if you managed to suck CO2 out of the air, there's been a great greening of the earth in the last 40 or 50 years. The atmospheric CO2 has certainly gone up. The extent to which humans are behind it is, in my view, open to debate. Wow. But, you know, you've seen that the population of Africa has risen from um, it was under half a billion people when I was young, and it's, it's almost a billion and a half now. Well, you start killing off those crops in marginal areas, you're going to see a lot of people die. So wow. that's a, you know, don't make a casual suggestion that we should do this. If you got rid of affordable energy, we're going to see more people dying of cold in Europe this winter. You know, we're going to see thousands, maybe tens of thousands. But if you got rid of, of, of affordable energy, you would be talking tens of millions of people dying. Now, that's a very high price to pay on the gamble. You know, people say, well, we should shut down fossil fuels because what if? But the thing is, if you shut down fossil fuels, you are going to cause mayhem. This is not the safe course. And what if you did it for nothing? That would be an insanely risky act. So we need to get back to the fundamentals of science. If the temperature rose to what it was in 1200 or at the time of the Ides of March, when Julius Caesar got his in the forum, he didn't die of heat stroke, would we in fact see any of the kind of apocalyptic scenarios uh, from you know, surges and heat wave deaths to the melting of the Arctic ice cap and so on? Uh, because if we wouldn't, this is a crazy thing to do. Stop and think, study the evidence. We can always do it later and we'll have better technology. Wow. So you're making a clarion call for evidence and debate and information. 
So what, how the heck does Al Gore, I remember his a movie from years ago called The Inconvenient Truth. When did that movie come out? Because he said we only had about 10 years left. So what happened? Well, he got very rich. That's one thing that happened. Okay. Um, and, and, all, and, you know, the snows on Kilimanjaro would be gone and so on. All, he made a lot of predictions uh, about the Arctic being ice-free, all these things, and none of it's come true. And this, and of course, Don't forget the polar bears, him. John. Don't forget the polar bears. The polar bears. I know he's got this animated polar bear that's just not going to make it. And, of course, polar bears are, in fact, flourishing. Um, and, and part of people didn't understand what polar bears needed to survive, but they also didn't understand polar bears went through the last interglacial, right? This is, this is the kind of stuff they don't yeah. know. And Al Gore, he did one very famous thing in that movie where he showed the what we think of the temperatures and atmospheric CO2 from the ice cores going back about 600,000 years. Mm -hmm. And he showed that there's a surprisingly good fit and went, gotcha. The, what he didn't realize is that the temperature leads the dance. Temperature moves and then atmospheric CO2 with a lag of about 800 years. And so there is some significant evidence that warming causes the oceans to degas CO2. But if that's the case, the CO2 has nothing to do with it. And human CO2 is not going to change the temperature at all. Uh, and again, you look at the film and you say to yourself, okay, well, there's a theory here and there are predictions. How did the predictions do it? And the answer is terribly. Okay. And we do, we do these crystal ball videos at CDN, uh, including the Canadian government's alarmist 2001 pamphlet and showed that their predictions didn't work out. If the predictions don't work, the theory has problems. Okay. So I um, want to turn to the audience and certainly welcome questions that you may have. Uh, we've incorporated a number of those questions into our discussion right now, John, but the thing that, that puzzles me is that we've had a whole series of, of leaders um, advocating for kind of doomsday scenarios and, and climate change action that have made all these predictions and they've not come true. They're, they're not, don't seem to be based on evidence. It's, it's kind of shocking, but yet we're kind of ramping up for even a, a higher level of hysteria. When we look at the so-called net zero policies that our governments in Canada are looking at employing. I look at the mandate letters for this current federal minister of environment. Uh, when I look at the, 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 the so it's, there's net zero by 2050. And then we've got things like the ESG movement, the environmental social governance movement, where all these corporations and banks are all getting woke with this hysteria. What the heck is going on? Instead of looking to the evidence and learning from that history, we're even going to another level. What's going on, John? Again, I, I think a couple of things are going on. One is to remember the world is a complicated place. And when a theory encounters reality and, and the predictions do not immediately come true, there's room to make eternal adjustments about, well, how long is it going to take and where do we expect to see the problems arising? So that for some time you can say, yeah, okay, Although uh, we've made a few bad predictions, the theory is sound and you're going to start to see this stuff happen. And then you seize on the evidence that looks like it's the right kind of stuff and say, oh, well, yeah, but with those tornadoes, see, it did happen. Or, you know, this penguin swam to New Zealand. Look, we're all in, in, a, in a lot of trouble. But I think that over time, uh, the theory is getting into some trouble. And uh, as the costs mount and the uh, apparent benefits don't, uh, I think there's more and more panic on the part of the alarmists. They keep having to up the ante because otherwise... Oh, so you think they're doubling down then? Well, I, I think that they are because they're becoming uneasy. They're starting to uh, to feel that they may have uh, backed themselves into a corner. And again, it's a natural human thing. If you've made all these predictions and they don't come true, it's hard to climb down and say, oops, sorry, guess I botched that one. Here's my so next they climbed theory. up a perch and now... The evidence is even breaking down even more. So yeah, so they're they're kind of caught. Yeah, and at some point they'll move on to a new panic, but some of them are going to look awfully silly. The other thing I'm going to suggest, you know, when people say, oh yeah, you know, global warming is a religion, to some extent, I think this kind of talk is unhelpful, but there is something going on here, which I would like to point out. There's a powerful human sense that we are not as we should be and that we must repent and change our ways or there will be some sort of cosmic wrath. And as people move away from uh, Christianity in particular, they can't shake that feeling. So they're mm. looking for somewhere else. And the, you know, the whole global warming thing, look, we are sinners. Uh, we are leading ourselves down the path of perdition. We must change our ways. We must 
say we're going to do better, we must do better. The thing that really is a problem, though, is it's you're much more likely to crusade against sin in other people than in sin in yourself, which is not a good way of going about things. But I think that impulse there that something must be wrong, whatever can it be? Oh, look, we're destroying the planet. So, so um, almost a moralistic imperative here to find some type of scapegoat and to make um, penance. Yeah. And, and again, I, you know, I think that this is actually a, a healthy impulse in us, but it's, if you direct it in the wrong way, it, it becomes very dangerous. So I do think, again, you see that a lot of people who do not have a traditional moral orientation um, identify themselves primarily as good people because they're saving the planet. And if you tell them, well, the planet's not in danger, then they're like, but, but what makes me a good person? And, and again, it's like, you know, all this crusading against racism, and I'm old enough to remember when, when real racism was a powerful and even a casual thing in society. We've seen enormous progress in my lifetime, and I'm delighted. It's, it's one of the things that's gone very well um, in, in public life. But at the same time, all these people are out there just in, in a rage over the remnants, partly, I think, because they really wish they could have been there and, and you know, marched with Martin Luther King and, and, and done the brave and important things that were done then. And, you know, I'm not criticizing that, but the problem is somebody else did it before you got there. Right, and right. so they, they feel that they're very important people, but they can't quite think why. Like oh. Greta Thunberg, if she, like Joan of Arc, if she stops doing this environmental thing, how will she ever again be a world savior instead of just this person with a tendency to lose her temper? So it's, you know, it's hard to let go of being a great and saintly person. Oh. And so this, I think, tends to hold people to it, even when the evidence isn't holding up nearly as well as they claim that it is. So, John, shifting from the moral imperative to very practical matters of impacts on Canadians, why should we care about this? You alluded to Europe and the incredible costs of you know, energy um, prices on people's lives. How do you anticipate this impacting people as they fill up their tank and go to the grocery store and heat their home? Well, or as they don't, that's part of the problem. It'll get harder and harder to do. And it won't be, you know, the Justin Trudeau's of this world or the Bill Morneau's who can't afford uh, making that, that terrible choice, heat or eat. It'll be the, all the people they claim to care the most about, the poor, the marginalized, you know, uh, all of these people. And uh, as the cost of these measures mount, we're going to see more and more pain and less and less gain. And this... Um, this, I think, is a very dangerous thing. I'm also worried that if the whole thing should uh, prove to have been an illusion, there will be a further erosion of trust. I think that's very bad. But on the practical level, Canada is a big, cold country. We need affordable, reliable energy, or we are not going to be able to live well, and many of us will not be able to live at all. And I think at some point, um, as the pain becomes more obvious, people are going to say, look, you owe us a better demonstration. I mean, you see this a lot in polls. People say, do you want to stop global warming? Oh, yeah, definitely. Would you pay 10 bucks a month? No. So clearly, they're not actually convinced that the apocalypse okay. is coming. They're just afraid to speak out. But to um, be clear, net zero means easily a quadrupling of your energy costs in the next decade or two as, as they just, I mean, that's just the beginning as we look at these policies. It's going to be a full frontal attack on the middle class, let alone the poor. Well, it has to be because either the alternative energy kicks in, in which case prices don't go up, you just have different energy, or it's not just that it'll be more expensive, they have to stop you from using it at all. I right. mean, this is where I think those carbon tax is so foolish. They raise the price of gasoline and they give you the money back so you can afford expensive gasoline. That's not going to change our habits. Uh, and I don't know what, to what extent that's deliberately cynical and to what extent they just understand so little about economics okay. that we should burn the taxes to keep warm. Um, but yeah, the rubber is hitting the road. You're already wow. seeing this. And that's where all, all this posturing is going to start to look very silly. So, John, I have a question. Uh, it has to do with the 16 U.S. states in the United States who said, you know what, for those uh, banks that go woke and are not giving loans to the oil and gas industry, we just won't give you any of our business as a U.S. state. Do you think we should adopt that in Canada if you were advising our premier of Saskatchewan, uh, Scott Moe or Jason Kenney and all the rest of them. Uh, is that something that can Canadian uh, decision makers or policymakers should be, should be adopting? 
Well, I am, uh, I'm very much a free marketeer. So I would like to see governments not involved in business. So I don't think they should be favoring this bank or subsidizing that company. I don't want subsidies to fossil fuels. I don't want subsidies to solar. I believe that it, it should be whatever works for consumers. And if a bank says, well, we're not going to lend money to the oil companies, um, you know, customers are free to say, well, then fine, I won't go to that bank. Um, or they're free to say, fine, I'll, you know, I'll keep using the bank and that's just, I'll, I won't care about that. Um, but I, you know, I want my bank to bank well. I, I don't want my governments having an opinion on which bank is a good bank. Um, but in the end, you see, if if it's if it's good policy to invest in alternative energy, the companies and banks that do it will make money. And if it's a bad idea and there aren't subsidies, they'll lose money and they'll be punished for it. But you know, it's it's like these there are stores that cater. I'm always fascinated. I see these ads and I wonder who the store thinks I think I am. You know, there are ads that repel me completely. I will never shop there. But, you know, if they're attracting the kind of customers who like that kind of thing, I don't believe anybody should make them stop. I might talk some sense into the customers about the okay. paucity of their lifestyle. But no, I don't I don't want government meddling in business either. All right. So I have another question that has to do with who's funding the environmental movement in Canada and should we care? Well, the, I mean, the environmental movement in Canada is funded by a lot of different sources. Um, it's funded by small individual contributions. It's funded by big foreign foundations and it's funded by governments. And that's the only one I care about because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's terrible. You know, the Tides Foundation is giving money to environmental groups. But if you conceive of the Tides Foundation as a group of people. Sorry, what is the Tides used, Foundation, John? Can you explain it, that? It's a big American foundation that funds basically climate activism. Um, and, and they've clearly sent a lot of money to Canadian groups. But again, the point is that these are people who are passionately convinced that man-made global warming is a problem and have raised a bunch of money to try to do something about it. And the only thing wrong with that is that they're mistaken. There's nothing sinister about trying to save the planet. It's just that you got the, uh, the theory wrong. But when governments do it, you know, we, we get these nasty comments all the time. Oh, you're in the pay of the oil companies. And I always say, don't tell me, tell the oil company because I haven't got the check yet. Right. We're a, we're a shoestring <laughs> organization and our government is throwing tens of millions of dollars at climate change. You know what? If we got a million dollars, it would transform the climate discussion nexus. I, that is like that is way beyond the funding that we have. Um, but governments are taking money from people in order to support causes those people don't support. And again, I, I don't even think there should be tax breaks for charitable donations. I think people should give their money to things they think are a good idea. And the, it, the reward is you gave money to something you thought was a good idea. Uh, but the, the government shouldn't be funding propaganda outfits, especially when governments lobby outfits that then you know turn around and try to make governments do things. That's a closed circle that I think okay. is dangerous. That's helpful. So, John, we're going to be... Um um wrapping things up shortly but we do have a question uh why are universities generally loath to encourage open and balanced inquiry into the climate change issue quickly john well they didn't need to add the last four or five words they're because they're run by governments universities they're run by governments they should, okay they should charge the full cost of tuition and see who thinks it's worth going there and we pretty soon put a stop to all this nonsense all right so thank you very much john so and finally, I wanted to ask you, you've had some incredible success in facilitating an open discussion. I know the universities don't do this, but you, in your case, are through Climate Nexus. You've had a number of your videos, it's quite amazing, have gone viral. Can you tell us about the most popular one that's gone viral, viral and how many million people have watched it to date? Yeah, we, in total, we've had about 5.3 million views, and I think 1.4 million are now on the 97% consensus myth alone. That is far and away our top performer because it's the biggest obstacle to rational discussion. And once people see that that argument is not valid, that there is this overwhelming consensus, then they're open to all the other stuff. So we're at climatediscussionnexus.com, and I hope people will come. And if you like what you see, please give us $5 a month. If you can afford it, $3 a month. It's, it's lots of small contributors that make it possible for us to keep the debate open. Well, that's uh, terrific, John. And uh, congratulations on that success. And on that note, I want to thank you for joining us today to have this incisive and also tongue-in-cheek at times discussion, but an important one regarding a critical policy topic for all Canadians that will impact their lives directly. So, we want to thank you uh, so much, John Robson, for joining us. Well, thank you very much for hosting it. And thanks to everybody for tuning in. All right. Um, that uh, brings an end to our program. I want to thank all of you for joining us uh, for today. 
And I encourage you to keep involved with Frontier. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter or pass them on to friends. We welcome your comments and encouragement. Be sure to join us for next Leaders on the Frontier on January the 20th. We're pleased to announce that the Honorable Brian Peckford and former Premier of Newfoundland will be joining us to discuss the history and current assault on our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The former Premier is the last living signer of the 1982 Constitution. Please join us and be sure to invite others. Thank you to all of you who donate to Frontier. You make our mission possible. Frontier is strictly nonpartisan, and Frontier does not accept any government funding. We, your support makes our mission possible for better public policy. So thank you. So that's it for today. On behalf of all of us, remember, without free and open discussion, we are not thinking. So wherever you may be, sure to, be sure to ask good questions and act as we all seek to build a better Canada. Again, thank you for joining us and wishing you all a Merry Christmas and best wishes for 2022.